All right, so tonight's topic, can we know the future? Who will be the world's next superpower? Have you ever thought about that? There's all types of people maybe grasping and, and grappling. What can we know about that? What does the Bible have to say about that? And that's what we want to look at this evening. You know, all of us dream. Sometimes they're good dreams, sometimes they're bad dreams. Have you ever had a bad dream? I know for me, a bad dream is showing up to work in my underwear. That is a bad dream. Another bad dream is when I've gone through a very stressful day. You have those days where maybe you have a bunch of tests when I was in school or, or deadlines or whatever it is, and you literally dream about the entire day and then your alarm clock goes off and you haven't done any of it. That is a bad dream. Have you ever had a good dream? where you have boarded the plane to go to a wonderful vacation destination. And the whole time in your dream, you're only on the plane and you can't seem to ever get off the plane. And finally, when you're about to get off the plane, you wake up. I don't know if that's a good dream. Sounds like another bad dream. All of us dream, right? I want to tell you about Abraham Lincoln and a dream that he had. In fact, it was just a few weeks, the last few weeks of his life that he had this dream where he heard wailing going on downstairs in the White House. Have you heard this? You can Google it if you don't believe me. He heard wailing and mourning and all kinds of things. So he got up out of his bed and he went down the stairs in the White House. And as he's wandering downstairs, he sees everybody surrounding a coffin and mourning. And he's wondering, what in the world is going on? What could all this mean? And as he asks, who is dead in the White House? And the response comes back. It is the president of the United States. Now, he shared this dream with a close friend. And just a few weeks later, of course, on April 14, 1865, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. Now, some of you may have gone to Ford's Theater, and there's his booth. And if you go there and if you see something, I think we went to the Nutcracker years ago or something, there's still flags and everything. It's all boarded off, and school kids will come and walk through and all the rest. But this is where it took place. Of course, then they took him across the street, but eventually he was taken to the east room of the White House there in Washington, D.C. Remarkable man, remarkable dream. Now, that's a little bit out of the ordinary, isn't it? Now you're all going to be waking up tomorrow thinking, oh no, what does that mean? <laughs> but we're going to look tonight at another very remarkable dream that's recorded for us in Scripture. But before we do that, I want to turn to the book of Revelation, lay a little bit of groundwork, and then we're going to jump to this dream, okay? So Revelation is a book of prophecies. It's a book of 666 and the Mark of the Beast, the Battle of Armageddon, the Seven Last Plagues, the Seven Trumpets, the Seven Seals, the Seven Bowls. All these things are all in Revelation. And people are going to want to know, what is the Mark of the Beast? We'll talk about that, I promise. But Revelation is also the last book of Scripture. And if you've ever picked up a really good book and you go to the last chapter, there's a good chance you might read it and say, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't get any of the characters. I don't understand the plot. I didn't think the ending was that good. Never mind. It's kind of similar in the book of Revelation. There's so much that builds up to it. In fact, over 600 times, I've even heard some say over a thousand times, 
and we'll mention that again a little bit. I'm getting ahead of myself, but it alludes to and makes reference to the Old Testament. That means it, it refers back to. So if you don't understand that context, that story, that scripture, when then we are reading Revelation, it doesn't make sense. But when you do, you kind of have this aha. And so we're going to have to lay some groundwork before we get to some of the heavier issues in Revelation. But first off, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the first words say, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Now, some people you may have heard will say, well, Revelation is a sealed book. We're not supposed to understand it. Now, why would God give this book? And as we keep reading, he gives it to his servant, John, and so on. Why would he give this book and then say, but don't read it, it's sealed? Does that make a lot of sense? In fact, the word itself, revelation, means to do what? To hide, conceal? No, to reveal. And sometimes we get so bogged down in all these things I've already listed, the mark of the beast and all the rest, when really that's not the point of revelation at all. The point is to reveal who? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one whose character we see revealed in significant and powerful ways in the book of Revelation. And so as we talk night after night, we want to uplift Jesus Christ first and foremost. That's the whole point of Revelation. And he gives us some insight that is helpful for us because he cares about us. He loves us. And so we're going to keep looking at that. So Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. And we already talked about what Revelation means. Revelation 22.10 says, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. So we read this back to Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Not a sealed book, it's a revelation of Jesus. To show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Those are all things that are helpful for us to keep in mind. Now I also want to talk a little bit about prophecy. It says here in Isaiah 46 verse 9, it says, remember the former things of old? For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. God is the one that remembers the things of old. But he's also the one that can prophesy what's going to come, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Prophecy is powerful because it helps us to know that we can trust the Bible. I mean, if you stop and think about it, there's so many different authors on multiple planets over hundreds of years that wrote this book. If we all went down here to the highway and we all witnessed a car accident and then we were all put in separate rooms and people said, OK, I want you to describe what you saw. Would we all come together perfectly? I bet you we couldn't even get the color of the cars right. Yet this book comes together in a remarkable way and prophecy. There are multiple times we'll see some tonight where far before a person's even born, we're going to talk about Cyrus tonight, before he's even born, God predicts that he will be born and what he will do. That's powerful. And we're going to look at that in a little more detail. So prophecy helps us to recognize that what this book says is true. Sometimes people think, well, you know, we reason about other things, but when it comes to biblical things, we don't reason. We have faith. We'll talk more about faith here in just a minute. Amos 3, verse 7. Surely the Lord God does how much? How much? Nothing. Unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. That's a God that wants us to know. Maybe not every exact detail, but he wants us to know enough 
that when things happen, we can say, you know, I think that's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And every time Bible prophecy is fulfilled, comes to pass, we can say, man, God knows what he's doing. Does God guess at the future? He knows it, right? And through prophecy, he's showing us that he knows the future, and he gives us hints about what's going to take place. Surely the Lord God does nothing. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Back to this idea of, well, in church things, we just have to have faith. If you just have, you know, you don't, don't worry about reason, don't worry about study, all these things. These are, these are spiritual things. We just have to have faith. We just believe it as if we're supposed to believe it blindly. I don't think God wants us to believe things blindly. Do you? In fact, right here, we use this as a definition of faith. And right here in Hebrews 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the, what's the word? Evidence of things not seen. Now, granted, there's going to have to be some faith because not everything is going to be spelled out exactly. There's going to be questions that all of us have for God when the time comes, right? God, why did you do this? That didn't make sense to me. How come you allowed that to happen? But we also see here there's going to be plenty of evidence to believe in him and to trust in him. He doesn't want us to just be blindly saying, okay, you know, we, we look for evidence everywhere else. Anybody use the word? Well, I researched it out. Honey, I know which bread maker we're supposed to buy. I know which car. I know which lawnmower. How do you know, honey? I researched it out. Does anybody here do that? I read reviews on Amazon. This one has five stars. Had 5,026 people. 5,226. Anyway, that really liked it. This one's going to be a quality product. I did that just the other day for a pitcher that we, we make our own almond milk. And I, it came today, and I went and put water in it to see if it pours better than the last one, and it dribbles down the front. I said, everybody rated this so well. I thought I had evidence to believe. Anyway, God gives us evidence. And so part of that evidence, I believe, is Bible prophecy. Because anybody, if you stop and think, could come up with their own book and say, this is our religious book. Great. What gives it authority? Well, we wrote it. What else? Well, we're good people. What else? There's some good things. Just read it. I think you'll find it very pleasant. Nice, uplifting. Great. What else? Scripture gives us prophecy as evidence that God is who he claims to be. And I think that's important. Do you? Yeah, All right. Let's move on. Here's another one. Isaiah 1:18. Come now and let us do what? Reason together. What does it mean to reason? Discuss. Let's think about this. Let's ponder over it. Let's make sure we're making the right decision, right? You know, there's a difference between an impulse and a conviction. An impulse is very flighty. Oh, I have to do this. I need to have this now, right? A conviction grows steadily over time. An impulse may be there today and it's gone tomorrow. Oh, I have to have this thing. And then tomorrow, oh, you know, I don't need that thing. It's too expensive. Why would I get that thing? No, I don't need it. But a conviction, I don't know, I'm going to keep thinking about it. I'm going to keep praying about it. And as you continue to think about it and pray about it, it grows and grows and grows. That's what a conviction is. So come now, let us reason together. So that's another key verse here. And here I already mentioned this. Over 600 times the book of Revelation references or alludes to the Old Testament. Now to some of the original readers way back in John the Revelator's day, all these things made a lot of sense to them, or many of them did, because they understood the Old Testament very, very well. But for some of us that maybe are a little more ignorant, 
on some of the things in the Old Testament. There could be something that's alluding to a story, and we just glaze right over it. And so we're going to find ourselves not just in the book of Revelation, but the, the first part of the story as well to help us understand Revelation. Does that make sense? Okay. It's almost like prophecy is peeking behind the curtain. That's why I like this picture and threw this in there. He's got his hand on, on the time, and he's showing us a little glimpse behind the curtain. He's probably not going to pull the whole thing back, but he's going to give us a glimpse of what we can expect. So I want to go now to the book of Daniel, and we're going to look at a very powerful prophecy in the book of Daniel. You may be familiar with this. You may not. This story took place in Babylon right here. You see pictured It's right there really where Kuwait and Iraq are primarily in Israel. And there in Babylon... At the time that we're going to read about in a moment, there were the hanging gardens of Nebuchadnezzar. Beautiful. In fact, it was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, these hanging gardens. And we don't really know what they look like, but here's a few depictions of what it looked like. I mean, you think about this was when all there was was Babylon. All there was was King Nebuchadnezzar. There was nobody else vying for anything else. He was the supreme ruler of the world. And so he would just wake up in the morning, I suppose, and say, you know what I think would be nice over there? Let's Let's put a hanging garden over there. That's going to be $18 billion. Great. Or maybe it wouldn't be $18 because he just has that many slaves and he's just going to send them over there and they'll work their whole life and the next, you know, whatever it might be. So he, <clears throat> these beautiful gardens, a beautiful city. But one night, Nebuchadnezzar had, can you guess? A dream. And this wasn't just an ordinary dream, but this was a dream that he felt really had some significance, but he couldn't figure out what it was. And so he was very, very curious. And so we read about it in Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep did what? Isn't that the worst? I mean, when you can't sleep, that's not pleasant. And so he's just churning and churning and churning. And so verse 2, so the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the astrologers. These are the guys I pay to know all the things that I don't know. And what's his request? To tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. And they said, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation of the dream. Now, wait a second. If you're able to tell the future... Why do I have to tell you the dream? I mean, you drive around Asheville and you see all these things for palm readers, right? Now, I'm, I'm not going to go in there. I'll tell you maybe a little later on in this series why I'm not going to go in there. But all these psychic hotlines and all the rest. I, I've always been tempted to call, and as they say, Hello, who am I speaking with? You should know. <laughs> Where are you calling from? You tell me. What's going on in your life? That's what I'd like to know. I mean, really, right? And so Nebuchadnezzar is, is saying, tell me what I dreamed. He's saying, well, just tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. Well, anybody can come up with a meaning to a dream, right? Yeah. They all come together. They get in the back room. You know what? This will probably be a good interpretation. The king would like that. And we'll all put our heads together. Yep, let's go and present that. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I can't. First of all, I can't remember the dream. And second of all, y'all are making me mad by not telling me the dream. What am I paying you for? Kings sometimes have a bad attitude. And so the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. You don't go up against a king who's firmly decided something. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, 
I will have you cut into pieces and have your houses turned into rubble. Capiche? Snip, snip. And so it goes. A death decree goes out. For all of these wise men, if you will, in Babylon. And here's their response. They say, there is no man on earth who can do what you ask. You're asking too much. This is impossible. You know, throw us some slack here or something. But he sticks to that. And in fact, it says, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. Now, here's where Daniel, how many of you came to the Daniel fast? Raise your hands. Yeah, here's where Daniel comes into the picture. Because Daniel, he's not a Babylonian. In fact, he was one of the Jews. Um, at, but the Jewish nation was really not behaving themselves. They weren't following God. They were being rebellious in many ways. So God allowed the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar to overtake them. But he was smart. He said, I'm not going to just annihilate everybody. I'm going to take their best and their brightest, and I'm going to put them in my group of best and brightest. And so that's where Daniel finds himself. Except, now there's a death decree for Daniel. This is a problem. Because I use my head to breathe. How about you? Yeah. And when I'm cut into pieces, I find it hard to do a lot of things I enjoy doing. And so look at what Daniel says. Daniel appeals. He goes before the king and he says, give us time. Give us time. If you read the story there in Daniel 2 that we may be able to give you and share with you an interpretation of the dream. And so the king says, fine, very well. I imagine you're all going to be in pieces, whether it's tomorrow or the next day. So what? Knock yourself out. I don't know what translation that is. But anyway, so Daniel goes back. He tells his other friends who are faithful to God, and they pray. Can you imagine that prayer meeting? I don't know about you, but if this is my last night to pray... I'm probably just going to keep praying and keep praying and keep praying. Has God given you any, any ideas yet? No? Well, let's keep praying. How about you? Okay, let's keep praying. If it were me, I probably would have prayed through the night. But that's not what we read. If you go look at the story, it says, uh, tells you how Daniel dealt with the crisis. They prayed, then he went to sleep, and then God gave him the dream. Let me put some of those up. He asked for time. He shared problems with his friends. He prayed and he waited in faith. Now, waiting is hard, isn't it? I mean, waiting at the post office when you show up and the line is long is hard. But when this might be your last day on earth and you pray about it, I don't know, they may have prayed an hour or two, I don't know, doesn't say. But then he just waited in faith. In fact, he went to bed, he went to sleep, which tells me something about how much he trusted God. It's hard to go to sleep, but maybe when it's hard to go to sleep, maybe you're not trusting God like you should in a situation. Anyway, so he goes to sleep, and God gives him the dream. He says, I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. And he goes back to the king with the interpretation of the dream. If he had never gone to sleep, he never would have had a dream. He never would have had the interpretation of the dream. So he goes before the king. And if he's self-serving, serving, he would say something maybe like this. Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But he could have left this out, but he doesn't. 
But there's a God in heaven who reveals what? Secrets. Secrets. Sounds like prophecy. Sounds like revelation. There's a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. I'm listening. And so he continues on. You, O king, were watching and behold a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome. And I imagine maybe the king is starting to say, Yes, 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 there was an image. It's starting to come back to me now. And it was big and it was awesome. Keep going. This image head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver and belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Yes, yes, that sounds all familiar. And everybody else in the palace is probably just silent. Whoa, this is happening. And you watch while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Yes, there was a stone. You're right. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Can I go now? No, it doesn't say that. Maybe he was thinking that. But then he continued on, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. That's what he wanted to know in the first place, right? I had this dream. It seems significant. What does it mean? Well, it starts out nice. You, O king, are a king of kings and are this head of gold. Ha, 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 yes. I'm at the top. I'm the head of gold. Sounds good. Tell me more. Well, we have Babylon. Largely, the, the city, what archaeologists and various people, if you look and research this, Babylon had so much gold. I mean, lots and lots of gold. And we're talking about 605 to 539 B.C. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Here's another artist's rendition. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Ten miles around, biggest city of that time, bar none, hands down. Rome was only six miles, Athens only four. So Babylon was the biggest and the best and the greatest. The temple of Marduk, you have an artist's rendition there in the background, was 300 feet high. Outside it was covered with blue glazed tile. Inside it was overlaid with gold. There was gold everywhere. The altar and throne were made from eight and a half tons of solid gold. That'd be a really good 401k, wouldn't it? <laughs> and so if, if Daniel was self-serving, he could have said, you're the head of gold, you're at the top. And then he could have, you know, had somebody call him on his cell phone, and can you please excuse me and leave? But he doesn't do that either. He tells the full interpretation. He says, it's chest and arms of silver. Remember that part? He goes and explains that. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. And sure enough, Persia arose after Babylon from 539 to 331 BC, representing the chest and arms of silver. And uh, if you study some of, of um, the time there, Persia was known for its alcohol and King Belshazzar, who was arrogant and proud, he was the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar, was having a big party one night. In fact, the Bible tells us about this too. And on the wall, the handwriting on the wall, do you ever remember that story? Mene, mene, tekel, parson. 
was what was written on the wall. And it says, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it, is what mene means. In fact, they had to call to have this interpreted by Daniel as well. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And that very night, oh, I have to read this too. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So that's what the hand wrote on the wall. And they had to call Daniel. He was much older by this time. And he interprets what this says on the wall because they're all drunk. They're all having a good time. And then this thing just catches everybody's eye. What's going on? And they remember, oh, Daniel, he might be the one that could help us out. Sure enough, he comes and he interprets this. And that very night, Cyrus is outside the city and he's trying to find a way to get in. The walls of the city are too thick, too high, impossible. In fact, they, they, they're so proud of how, fact, how the fact that the city is just impregnable that they, they don't worry about anything. They have a water supply, they have food supply for 50 years and all kinds of things. Sometimes even in Bible times, they throw food down at, at attacking armies as a way of saying, oh, it looks hot out there. Oh, you, you want some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? Here, let's give you something. You look so famished. We have a 50-year food supply here. We're not worried. Mind games, right? Well, Cyrus did something that they weren't expecting. On this night that they're partying, that they're drinking alcohol, they're drunk, that the hand's right on the wall. Cyrus is having his men. It probably took several days. But he has his men divert the river. And so maybe they have some channel off this side and they have something that they're able to just drop like a dam and divert the river all at once and it kind of goes off another way and, and avoids the city altogether. And so on this night that everybody is drunk, somebody leaves the gate open to the river because they had this big iron gate that the water flowed through as well. They left that open and all of the men file into Babylon. And just like that, unsuspecting of anything, they overtake Babylon. They walk in and take it. Isaiah 45, verse 1. This is, is written, by the way, 150 years before Cyrus is even born. So this, too, is prophecy. Okay? Probably 200 years before the event. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. Cyrus the Mean, named approximately 150 years before his birth. And so you have Persia take over next from 539 to 331 B.C. But Daniel continues on. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, will come about. And this is symbolized by Greece. Again, if you don't believe me, go back and, and just Google these things, and they'll pop right up. Greece. Alexander the Great was the one that defeated Darius III of Persia. And he was the one that changed everything. So first you had Babylon, then you had Medo-Persia. Now you have Greece. Alexander the Great, by the way, an incredible warrior. Very young. I think he died at 32, 33. Very, very young. And at the Battle of Arbella in 331 BC, he overtook Medo-Persia. And now Greece was the main person on the world stage. In fact, all of their weaponry at that time was largely... Uh, brass and that kind of thing, and so or bronze, I should say. And so that's a good characteristic for that as well. Uh, one author of history says this, I'm persuaded that there was no nation, city, nor people where his name did not reach. There seems to have been some divine hand presiding both over his birth and actions. That's in the Historical Library, Book 16, Chapter 12. 
And so he overtook Medo-Persia. And then finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. That's the legs of iron. And that's symbolic of Rome from 168 to 476 A.D. Edward Gibbon writes this, The images of gold, silver, or brass that might serve to represent the nations and their kings were successively broken by the iron monarchy of Rome. And again, iron was everywhere throughout Rome at that time. In fact, it was during the birth of Christ. It was during the Roman Empire, wasn't it? In fact, Roman decreed to kill all the babies in the land two years and under to try to get rid of who? Jesus. It was a Roman governor who left the Jews, or sorry, let the Jews take Jesus and crucify him. And so all of this is taking place while Rome is in power. So you have Babylon, the head of gold, followed by Persia, chest and arms of silver, Greece, the thighs of bronze, and Rome, the legs of iron. And then there's one more piece, divided Europe, feet of iron and clay. Still in Daniel chapter 2, now verse 41, just as you saw the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a what kind of kingdom? Divided kingdom. And this is where I think it gets very interesting. You know, throughout history, and this is the Fredericksburg Castle in Denmark, and you can go there and you can look on the walls and you can see in their family tree, everybody is interconnected royally. Because the idea was, if I can get my daughter to marry his son, or vice versa, or whatever, then we'll all come together, and we, no one will fight, no one will try and take anything from anybody else, and everyone will just be happy, and it will be so much better. More often than not, it didn't ever work out that way. And you would have battle after battle after battle. And here you have the di- division of Europe. And you have all these different classes that we now have in Europe today, and then three that are now extinct, and they continue to exist and be divided, right? And so here you have the ten toes. Sometimes people refer to it as the ten toes and that type of thing. And so you have Charlemagne, who tried to bring everybody together again. Did it work? Didn't work. You have Charles V, trying to bring everybody together. Does it work? No. What does the Bible say? They will not cleave one to another. You have Louis XIV, same thing. Did it work? Didn't work. You have Napoleon. Oh, Napoleon, he's going to be the one to do it. They shall not cleave, the Bible says. In fact, the Battle of Waterloo, this is written in the historical lectures, lecture number three on modern history says, what was the principal adversary of this tremendous power? By whom was it checked and resisted and put down? By none and by nothing, but the direct and manifest interposition of God. Again and again, you have historians saying this doesn't make a lot of sense, but some way, somehow, it was almost as if God was preventing this from happening. I don't know. Does God know the future? Does he guess? He doesn't guess. He's not right 75% of the time. That'd be pretty good. He's right 100% of the time. But they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. So Napoleon couldn't do it. Kaiser Wilhelm couldn't do it. And there at the bottom, even Hitler couldn't do it. They're all grasping to try to unite the world and be the next world superpower, the third right. We are going to do it. Not going to happen. I don't care who comes onto the scene. If you believe in the Bible and Bible prophecy and you believe God knows what he's talking about, never again will there be one world empire. 
again. Not going to happen. They will not cleave. I was looking at this book just this morning. A thousand shall fall. You can get it at Amazon in a Kindle version or uh, hard copy, whatever. But this is a remarkable story. This guy was German. In fact, his grandson was my teacher at Southern, Michael Hosel, and I took Hebrew from him. And he would start on Friday mornings by telling us stories of his grandfather and their family, but primarily of this man when he was in the war. He was in World War I, then he was converted, and then he was drafted to go into World War II. Didn't want to go to war, didn't believe in war. He tried to be a conscientious objector. And instead, they said, no, 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 we're going to put you where it's some of the most worthless, uh, ruthless, I should say. <clears throat> we're going to put you out front of where Hitler wants to go next, and you're going to build bridges and everything else. So you're the first people to go into enemy territory. And he prays, he gathers his family around because he, he doesn't believe in Hitler, he doesn't believe in this war, he doesn't believe in killing people and all those things. And he prays a very simple prayer with his family before he actually heads off to war. He says, Lord, help me to be able to be faithful to you and to follow all 10 of your commandments. He doesn't want to kill anybody. Partway in this story, he actually takes his gun one night and throws it into the water and puts a piece of wood that he paints black in the holster because he has to carry, but he doesn't want to be put in a situation where he will be tempted to use it. And so he gets rid of his gun. Time and time again, he trusts in God and God alone. I mean, this book, Elizabeth and I, my wife back here and my kids, how y'all doing? I need to be done, huh? Okay. Elizabeth and I were going to read this book together. It's going to be a nice thing that we would do. You know, we'd sit down on the couch and we'd take turns reading it. And we did the first chapter or two. And then I came home from work the next day and, and you know, we, oh, you ready to read the next chapter? Sorry. What? I finished the book. <laughs> it's just one of those books. There's times where they're marching and his feet are just chewed up and, and have all kinds of, of, what would you call it, blisters and bleeding and all the rest. And he's afraid if he takes his boots off, he's not going to be able to get them back on again. But he has to inspect, and sure enough, they're just tore up, and he's not, they're so swollen. And he prays a prayer, the next morning he wakes up, and his feet are perfect. Incredible stories. And so, um, and he would tell us these stories at the beginning of Hebrew class, you know, and we'd want to keep going, keep going. Well, there, a time comes, and he's always reading his Bible, and people are criticizing him for, what are you, a Jew? Are you a secret Jew? And he's reading his Bible. At one point, he gains enough credibility with the people around him by his example that at one point they call him in. And it's not just him, but it's about three or four war generals in the room. And they said, you know your Bible well? Well, you know, I, I, I read it. And they started asking him questions, and they kept, he kept coming up with answers. And then finally they ran out of questions. He said, are you familiar with, with Daniel 2? No, what's Daniel 2? And he spent the next, I think it's either two or three hours, explaining this prophecy to them. He had written down all the dates, that I just shared with you on a little note card that was in his Bible or maybe on the margin of his Bible. And they took all that time to explain all this. And those generals said, wow, I have never heard anything like this in my life. They said, I believe every word of it. And, he's, and he had even told them the conclusion that he come to that the Reich would not overcome. Hitler would not win this war because God says it wouldn't happen. And so he ends up telling Hazel, he says, I want you to Instead of putting all the fuel in some of these trucks, I want you to save, I don't remember what it was, a percentage every time we get fuel. I want you to save it back over here. Don't tell anybody. You know, you do stuff like that and you're done, right? I want you to save some fuel so that when the war is over, we'll have enough to go home. That's what he says. That's what he says. 
Incredible book. They shall not cleave feet of iron and clay from 476 AD to the present. Revelation 17, 12 says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdoms as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So we're going to talk more about this. This is laying a foundation that we'll come back to in Revelation. We're going to build on this. In fact, we're going to add more detail. First, we just have the kingdoms, and then we're going to have more detail about the kingdoms, and then we're going to have more detail about one of the kingdoms, and we're just going to continue to unpack it as we go along. But this hopefully will, will put a framework for you that as we add to it, you'll say, aha, and you can put that on that shelf and that shelf, and it'll kind of organize it for you. Does that make sense? We're kind of creating these little bins. If, my wife loves bins. We have a basement, and I build her a whole wall of bins, and she can label it and organize it, and there's seats through, and everything has its place. Is anybody else like that? Well, at least it's supposed to have its place until I get in there and meddle it. But anyway, we're trying to create this, this network in your mind, this framework. Continuing on in Revelation, these are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. So again, we'll come back to this idea. Returning to Daniel chapter 2, to finish off his dream, you watch while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And so this rock in prophecy is symbolic of the coming of Jesus Christ. There's not going to be another world power. There's not going to be another world leader. There's not going to be another big, major, significant power player. There's going to be Jesus Christ coming in the flesh to take us home and eventually to set up his kingdom on this earth. So some of these last events is Jesus' second coming. The nations of Europe will come to an end. God will set up his kingdom and God's kingdom will last forever. And Jesus will be anointed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he comes to earth to reign over an everlasting kingdom. So sometimes people will say, well, where are we in in prophecy according to Daniel 2? Well, we're not in the head. We're not in the chest. We're not in the thighs. We're not in the legs. We're not even in the feet as much as we're in the toenails. I'm not sure if that's biblical or not. It doesn't talk about the toenails, but, but we're right there. The next thing to happen is Jesus will come. That's exciting to me, living in 2016. It probably wouldn't have been so exciting for Daniel because he knows this is not going to be when I'm around probably, but it's exciting for me. Jesus will come. Have you ever stopped to imagine that day, what it will be like? What will matter on that day? What all of a sudden will just go away on that day? I don't know, but I think about that a fair bit. We have a little boy, James. We have four kids, two boys and two girls. And James, our youngest, is challenged. He has something called Alexander disease, which is extremely rare. There's only, how many known cases? I haven't told this in a while. Is it 500 in the world ever recorded? And he's got a variant. He's one of three. And it's a brain issue that means that and it affects his frontal lobe. And so he can't uh, develop like normal children uh, will. We've had several MRIs and it shows that 
in his brain matter, it's kind of foggy. You know how you should have all these fingers. Well, it, somehow it just looks kind of overcast is the best way I can describe it. And it's there around his brain stem and other things. And so this devastated us when we found out all of this. And it's a fatal thing. We don't know how long. <clears throat> Sometimes they don't even live as long as he has. He's going to have his third birthday this uh, summer. But we've found since we first learned of this that there's some on Facebook that uh, are in their teens and they're functioning relatively well. And so we're encouraged by that. And we don't know what the future holds for James. Um, at some point, even though he's getting better, in fact, he's starting to walk a little bit. We're trying to capture a video of him. He's been with this walker. But now he'll leave some of that behind and he can walk from me to Charles. Now, sometimes he'll fall along the way, but the fact that he can do it is, hey, right? I'm still a father. Hey! So I don't know. He may... He may just be fine and normal. He may at some point, what the doctors tell us, is that his improvement will some, at some point reach a ceiling and he'll start to decline. And he'll start to go backwards and start to lose function until eventually he loses enough function that he passes away. That's going to be tough. I've had plenty of not, uh, time thinking about that and praying about that, crying about that. But you know, since that's happened, I think differently about this day. Because... I think of James, if it, were, if it were tomorrow or next week or in the next year or two, I think of James just running to us. And maybe he's normal size. I mean, he's kind of small for his age. He's a continual youngster, but that's okay. We love him. He's got a sweet personality. He loves to flirt. <clears throat> so don't think it's just you. It's, it's you and everybody. So don't let him break your heart. But I just imagine him running and being able to talk. And he still may learn to talk, but to be able to say, you know, thank you so much for taking such good care, whatever it might be. And I don't even think there'll probably be words. It'll just be bleh, right? Be all over. And that's a reality. That's not just a maybe. As sure as God predicted all of these kingdoms, the last, the stone, that's cut out not by human hands, will come and Jesus will come. And on that day, all these things will be made right once and for all. And that will be a beautiful, beautiful day. Revelation eleven fifteen, And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's going to be a good day. That's going to be a good day. So Daniel 2, 47, Truly your God, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking now, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and revealer of secrets. Nebuchadnezzar says, Wow, wow. In fact, eventually, the Lord continues to work on Nebuchadnezzar. It takes quite a while, but eventually, Nebuchadnezzar writes a portion of Holy Scripture. How many here have done that? Anybody? Anybody? I haven't, but Nebuchadnezzar did, and he was a pretty wicked guy, but God worked on him. Kind of another story. John 14, 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And he doesn't send somebody. Anybody who's been separated for a long period of time and they're coming to the airport, you don't send somebody. You go. I believe Jesus can't wait to come. And people say, oh, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. When's he going to come? I got news for you. None of us in this room have to wait more than a lifetime. Right? How long has God been waiting? And waiting. 
and waiting. He is so anxious to come. Dear Heavenly Father, as we have laid a little bit of a foundation here, faith is things hoped for, but it's also the evidence of things not seen. And you've given us some evidence tonight of how you do hold the future and us. And you reveal these things through your servants, the prophets, so that we might have some idea, some understanding of what we can expect, what is coming down the pike. And Lord, that gives us hope knowing that you know. And as long as we hang on to your hand, you will guide us through these end times that are really upon us even now. And Revelation has so many more insights onto what we're seeing and what we're going to see. And Lord, you give us all of that because you're a God of love and compassion. And you want us to base our trust on you on evidence. So when there are those things that we don't understand, that we can't fully figure out, we can just place it in your hand and say, Lord, we trust you. As long as we stay connected with you and hang on to you, you will bring us through. And so, Lord, we just thank you for all that have come out tonight and for your blessing in this place. In your name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.